0: From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa.
1: Welcome back to Terra Informa, and we'll be your hosts, Amanda Rooney and Sophia Osborne. This week, our headlines cover a local story about downtown
0: cyclists in Edmonton, national perspectives on the recent $4.5 billion purchase of the Kinder Morgan pipeline by the Canadian government and an international story about the remarkably deadly ecological impact of hippo feces in Africa.
1: After that, my fellow co-host Sophia will be sharing with us the story of the first orca whale to be taken into captivity. Yes, I'm super excited to share that, but first, our
0: headlines. According to surveys and statistics, City of Edmonton, in the last year since June 2016, when Edmonton's new downtown bicycle grid was implemented, we've seen a 72% increase in the median number of downtown summer cyclists.
1: Twitter photos are rife with humor about the gridlock of cyclists. According to a local blogger and councillor candidate Troy Pavlek, this is an awesome example of why the downtown bike grid is a good model that other cities sh- could follow. In his words, Quote, every cyclist on the downtown bike grid is one less potential car driver, being traffic. It's one more person that's statistically more likely to stop, mingle, and make purchases at local businesses on their route. It's one more person commuting on infrastructure that costs society much less than a personal vehicle. It's one more person lowering their risk of diabetes, obesity, and strokes, saving all taxpayers' health care costs. End quote. And now, to a national story that everyone's excited about.
0: The Canadian government has announced that they will be buying the controversial Trans Mountain expansion project from the Texas oil company Kinder Morgan for $4.5 billion. On May 29th, Finance Minister Bill Morneau said the sale, quote, will allow the project to proceed under the ownership of a crown corporation, end quote. The Liberal government argues that this nationalization of the Trans Mountain pipeline is necessary because It will allow oil from the Alberta tar sands to reach world markets, grow the economy and ensure construction jobs. The Alberta government has also agreed to provide funding for any unexpected costs
1: that arise during construction. Justin Trudeau insists that this move is in the national interest. And Alberta NDP Premier Rachel Notley is jubilant. But critics of many political leanings are outraged. According to Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, quote, Justin Trudeau is asking Canadians to bail him out of his failure, end quote. Meanwhile, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh said, quote, climate change leaders don't spend $4.5 billion on pipelines, end quote.
0: Other right-wing critics, like advocates of tax reduction Aaron Woodrick, say, quote, this move signals to other prospective investors that large projects such as pipelines cannot be built by private industry in Canada, and the cost and risk of a $7 billion project that was going to be willingly financed entirely by a private company will now be unnecessarily transferred onto the backs of Canadian taxpayers, end quote. Echoing many environmentalists and indigenous rights activists, Clayton Thomas Muller writes, quote, from ending boil water advisories in First Nations communities to investing in public housing and renewable energy, there is no shortage of ways in which the government could better spend $4.5 billion. They're choosing instead to invest in a massive climate-wrecking pipeline that doesn't have indigenous consent." End quote.
1: According to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, quote, "...the project became too risky for a commercial entity to go forward with it." End quote. So critics wonder, if this project is too risky for private business, why isn't it too risky for Canadian citizens? According to independent economist Robin Allen,
0: the real cost of the project will be far more than $4.5 billion, actually 15 to $20 billion if it is built. That's because the $4.5 billion only accounts for what exists, but it will also require $7.4 billion to build the project. billion in financial assurances for the land-based spill risk,
1: and a $1.5 billion ocean protection plan for marine spill risk. Where to from here? Lots of questions remain to be answered. What will become of the legal challenges launched by several First Nations at the Federal Court of Appeal? How will the BC government's continued opposition to the pipeline project play out at the Supreme Court? And how will Canada keep their climate goals if we are now acting as a pipeline company. And what will all of this mean for upcoming elections? We'll keep you updated, but for now, we turn to Africa for a story about hippos. A new study published in the journal Nature Communications by Chris Dutton and Amanda Sibeliski is titled, Organic Matter Loading by Hippopotami Causes Subsidy Overload Resulting in Downstream Hypoxia and Fish Kills. What does that mean? In common English, quote, huge
0: amounts of hippo poop suffocate and kill thousands of downstream fish, end quote. This is a fascinating ecological finding, for a few reasons. The story starts with the hippos, who feed on land at night and wallow in rivers to stay cool in the day, while constantly defecating. In the Mara River in East Africa, straddling the border between Tanzania and Kenya, where the researchers conducted their study, About 4,000 hippos excrete about 8,500 kilograms of feces into just 100 kilometers of river. The feces is full of gases, none of which are oxygen. When the river floods, it disturbs hot spots of settled dung, sending waves of oxygen starved water downstream, flooding the banks with thousands of suffocated fish carcasses, which are then quickly eaten by
1: local storks, vultures, crocodiles, and hyenas. This study suggests that this phenomenon might have occurred throughout Africa where larger hippo herds once existed. As Eddie Young points out in his Atlantic article on the topic, this also challenges our ideas of pristine wilderness. This may be an example of a pre-industrialized ecosystem, but these rivers are not a singing stream of clear water. In Young's words, they're, quote, a world of dead bodies, putrefying poop, and the occasional wave of suffocation, end quote. And this swirling culmination of excrement acts as a conveyor
0: belt of dead fish feeding hundreds of animals along the river. Now for our episode, I spoke with mark Laren Young, a Canadian journalist, about the story of Moby Doll, an orca whale who was harpooned off the coast
1: of Saturna Island in British Columbia in 1964. Moby survived the harpooning and became the first orca whale taken into captivity. Mark wrote an article about Moby Doll for the walrus in 2014, which has snowballed into a radio broadcast, book, and documentary. Sophia talked to Mark about the book he wrote, chronicling the whale's story called The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. A couple years ago, I was working on Saturna Island, and I met Mark at a pizza
0: night, and we got to talking about science journalism and his work on this story. So I'm really excited to share it with you all.
1: Wow, Sophia's so cool.
2: <laughs> CBC television reported the night of July 16, 1964, that the Vancouver Aquarium had captured a monster. I'm Mark Ryan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wrote the book the *Killer Whale: Who Changed the World* and uh, wrote and directed the documentary *The 100-Year-Old Whale*.
0: I guess I, I'm kind of realizing, like, um, I'm out here in in Alberta, and a lot of people I talk to have never seen an orca before, or might kind of confuse them in their mind with other, you know, whales and porpoises and everything. Would you be able to to just give a little spiel about? What, what an orca is? <laughs> sure,
2: okay. Whales classify in a whole bunch of different subsets. So, you'll hear people say that orcas are just really big dolphins. Having now spoken to a lot of scientists, they're explaining dolphins are kind of small whales. And so they look, they look more like dolphins or porpoises than other whales. But the orcas, however, are really unique And that different communities of orcas eat very different things that are very specific in their diet. So, the whale who became known as Moby Doll was a southern resident, and uh, these orcas found off the west coast of BC and uh, Washington, BC, Washington, Oregon. They'll sometimes go as far down as California if there's no food. And they eat pretty much exclusively Chinook salmon. Other kinds of orcas will eat all sorts of things. They're phenomenally intelligent, and um, which is one of the things that attracted my attention and how I've ended up continuing to write about the orcas. I'm blown away by the level of intelligence.
0: I was thinking, could you just start by telling us the story of Moby Doll?
2: Sure. Basically, Moby Doll is the first ever killer whale who humans got to know in captivity. And what caught my imagination about the story was I realized this was first contact with alien species. It's really like a King Kong story because when I heard that the Vancouver Aquarium had once harpooned a barca and put that whale on display, I was just horrified. And I set out to find out what was behind that. And I went to meet the curator, who had long since retired, who had uh, launched this mission, a guy named Dr. Murray Newman. And when I said, basically, why in the world would you harpoon an orca, he brought out this book that was like the most up-to-date information on orcas from 1964, which was when this happened. And it described orcas as the most horrifying, terrifying creatures on the planet. And then I discovered that not only weren't people upset at the idea that the Ink for went out to harpoon and all that the attitude was more like, yeah, go get them. That up until 64, up until the capture of Moby Doll. The Canadian and U.S. military regularly used orcas for target practice. That There was a story, and I tracked that in Time magazine, that was like this light, bright, isn't this amusing story about how the government of Iceland thought of the American military to take out a hundred orcas with machine guns from, from their helicopters. And this was reported as, isn't this a great thing? We are getting rid of these sea monsters. So the Vancouver Corps sent out this team to harpoon an orca. The plan was to use the body to build the first ever anatomically accurate scale model. And the reason behind that was no one could imagine that a captive orca would not try and kill whoever was looking after it. And... Um, what happened was the two guys who were on the mission fired a harpoon. Uh, the guy who fired it had never fired a harpoon at anything living before and ended up, instead of killing the whale, hooking it. And the, basically, the harpoon went through the blubber and caught the whale. And what happened next was the whale lost consciousness. And two other whales approached And based on what people thought, you know, based on what humans thought we knew about whales back then, the guys braced for these two whales ripping the other whale to shreds. And instead, they lifted this other orca to the the surface. And once this young whale gained consciousness, they eventually um, made the case to bring the whale back to Vancouver.
0: So Moby Doll is in the Vancouver Harbor, right? Um in captivity.
2: Yep. What
0: happens next?
2: Well, what happened was these two guys went from trying to kill Moby to doing everything they could to save Moby, which was a really interesting shift. And one of the biggest shocks for me when I looked into this story was that with one exception, every single person deeply involved in this Expedition to catch and kill a whale believed they were risking their life at one point because these guys were all scared. The way it was explained to me by by Newman, he said, "Imagine if you had a lion or a tiger or a bear at the other end of our You know, they were bracing the." Any moment, this whale was going to come to its senses and kill them. And when Moby was initially caught, the first thing that uh, Sam Birch, this is the guy who harpooned the whale, did was break at a rifle and fire three bullets at the whale at point-blank blank range. And the amazing thing, he was clearly so scared of the whale that he missed on all three shots. We know from the necropsy that there were no bullet wounds, before. but he believed that the whale was going to come and kill them. They were going to topple their small boat. The other whales were going to come and attack them. But what happened was his assistant, a guy named Joe Bauer, I've got to know quite well, decided that he wanted to see how badly injured the, they captured whale was, and he hopped in a small skiff, and. As he did that, the people of Saturna Island showed up with their rifles to help finish the aquarium's mission. And they started firing at the injured whale. And Bauer genuinely did put his life on the line because he took his skiff out and went between the men with their rifles on the shore and the wounded whale. And he went out and went, I think this is a young whale. I think it's injured and I don't think it's injured that badly. I think we can get it back. So, the aquarium made the decision they were going to take the whale back, and Birch and Bauer wanted to figure out how they could do this, causing as little additional pain as possible, and they set up a series of um, sort of, they used tires as pontoon, and they floated the harpoon line, and they basically tried to figure out a way they could swim with the whale, so they could lead Moby, who they were calling Hound Dog at the time, uh, back to Vancouver Harbor. And they went really, really, really slowly. And they said basically once they figured out what they were doing together, the Moby moved like a dog on a leash, which is why they named, they initially named him uh, Hound Dog, and. They showed up back in Vancouver, and Murray Newman had convinced the local dry dog to hold the whale. And what happened was the entire city of Vancouver wanted to see the monster in the dry dog. They knew that the harpoon would have, been, would have caused an infection. So, and whales are mammals like us, so they thought, okay, we'll use penicillin. But nobody was going to go close to this, you know, monster of the deep. So they built an actual 10-foot pole like you've heard of the proverbial i wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole they wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole they built a 10-foot pole and put a needle on the top of it to administer penicillin because that was as close as anybody was going to get to this terrifying creature for quite a long time
0: yeah um i guess when we met it was out on saturno which is such an amazing place for land-based orca watching um would you be able to like describe an experience you've had with orcas like i know i've had some amazing encounters with them that just really like cemented my love and appreciation for them well that's kind
2: of the amazing thing is that like when you're saying you've had an amazing experience with orcas orcas are really quite phenomenal in the way they interact with My uh, my partner, Rain, who's been uh, filming like for us, for a movie, The the 100-Year-Old Whale, we went out to film Granny uh, a few years ago. And Granny was believed to be 105 years old. She was matriarch of the Southern Rose and Torcas Matriarchal Society. And we had been told by whale watchers that Granny had been phenomenally difficult to spot for the last year. She basically hooked up with a whale for another pod. She was still swimming with the pod, but she was swimming about a mile ahead, so far enough that she was leading them, but also far enough that if you were a whale-watching boat, you weren't really catching those two that were swimming on their own. You were catching the larger pod. And we got this call saying, Granny's out there, and... You should get out in the boat, because this is the first time we've seen her nature. And what happened was, Granny greeted us like she'd been waiting for us to show up. And she tail slapped and she spy-hopped, and then she breached. spy hop is when a whale jumps up and basically looks to see what's going on. This one guy has been photographing orcas 20 years, he said he'd seen Granny Breach exactly five times and two of those were right in front of us. And it was like she knew we were filming it. And when we've told this to people who don't know Orcas, they're like, oh yeah, that's crazy. Place, isn't it? And we tell people who do know Orcas, they just not Yep, that's Orcas. They just do stuff like that. But probably the, the top writer about Orcas in the world, Eric Hoyt, who's got at least 20 books on Orcas, talks about Uh, orcas having this sense of friendlies, that they have a sense of who's out there looking after them, and they show up. And it's really an astonishing thing. And even when the the flip side of that is that everything that I've read about humans trying to do bad things to orcas, the orcas have also sensed. So in British Columbia, uh, you know this having spent time on Saturna, I'm sure, in, in BC, in just before Moby Doll was caught, we had set up a machine gun encampment on, in Campbell River to take out the orcas. So there was a machine gun on the shoreline, and the plan was that as soon as an orca swam close enough to shore, the fishermen were going to run to the machine gun and start firing. And no orcas swam by the machine gun even though that was their regular feeding route. Saturna Island, which, as you know, is the single best place in Canada to see a whale from the shore, stayed away for the entire 90 days that the harpoon was set up. Murray Newman, who led the expedition, just turned to and said, I think they're psychic. I think they know we're here. Because they had records of the last previous three, four, five years and there's never been two consecutive days when the orcas hadn't had swam close to shore. And suddenly, there's a harpoon close on the shoreline, and the are just like, yep, yeah, not going near that. And when the, the day the orcas did show up, was the day after the plan to harpoon them had been called off. And the only reason the harpoon was still up there was the two guys got drunk the night before to celebrate they were finally going home. So, They were hung over and hadn't taken down the the harpoon yet. So it was like the whale sort of got the memo that, oh, yeah, the harpoon's leaving. And uh, you know, a a few fewer glasses of sake and the harpoon would have been gone.
0: So the book that you wrote about Moby Doll is called The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. Um, How do you think that Moby changed the world? Well,
2: because in a span of, really in a span of a few days, but certainly over the 90 days when Moby was in captivity, the media coverage of the whale was phenomenal. Suddenly, everybody went from going, oh, these are the fiercest, most terrifying creatures on Earth, to these are kind of cute cuddling. Uh, these would be the ultimate aquarium exhibit. What happened was we stopped killing whales and started loving them to death. So instead of everybody wanting to shoot these whales because they were eating our salmon, you know, in BC it was like they're eating our salmon. In uh, Iceland they're eating our herring. People started going, oh, wow, maybe we should stop shooting them. Maybe they are not monsters. And better yet for some people... Maybe we can put, make money for catching and putting these orchids on display. But basically, Moby led to Moby led to everything that we found out, everything we now know about whales, leads back to the accidental capture of Moby Doll. Somebody who was drafted to feed Moby Doll was named Dr. Mike Big. He was studying seals and sealants he became interested in whales when he was drafted to work with Moby. He became the first person to discover that, that there are different types of orcas, that there are mammal eating orcas and fish-eating orcas and specific cultures. We now believe there, there are as many as 10 different distinct ecotypes. John Ford was a little kid who went to meet Moby when the one-day Moby was on display. Publicly, uh, roughly twenty thousand people showed up, which is the same number that went to the Beatles Empire Stadium uh, a few months later. And John Ford became so interested in the whales that he ended up dedicating his life to them. And he's the guy who discovered the different orca pods of what were called different dialects. So that discovery came out of Moby, and basically, it wasn't a coincidence that Greenpeace and the whole movement saved the whales around the world. Out of Vancouver, so Greenpeace and Sea Shepherd both sprung that out of the Vancouver Aquarium work with Moby Doll.
0: Obviously, Moby has left a big legacy, but uh, what's the end of Moby's story? Like, how did he die? I guess.
2: <laughs> oh, I guess we should say that everybody thought Moby Doll was a she. Everybody except actually Bill Bauer uh, thought Moby was female. That Moby. Basically, was transferred to a makeshift pen in Jericho Beach, and Jericho Beach is a very public area, very polluted area, and Moby basically died from exhaustion and drowned because he was in an area of water that didn't have enough saline; it didn't have the same sort of saline levels that the ocean would normally have to keep an orca afloat. So, basically the the little whale died from exhaustion. And, you know, as well, there was a lot of pollution in that. You know, you could see some... Moby looked pretty nasty by the time he died. There were were lesions and things like that, which, you know, I know the scientists were assured weren't the cause of death, but couldn't have made life easier.
0: How many days had he...
2: I think it was 89 days in captivity. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And by the end of those 89 days, humans went from orcas are monsters, and it's okay to put up machine guns and kill them, and it's okay to use them for target practice, to orcas are really interesting. And suddenly, aquariums everywhere are like, we need to see this thing.
1: Thank you so much for talking to me um, and I really enjoyed the book as well thank you so much thanks so much for that piece Sophia I was really surprised to hear how feared orca whales were before we knew very much about them it makes the name killer whale make a little bit more sense
0: yeah I find it so surprising too and I can't imagine ever wanting to shoot an orca um, like Mark was saying, Saturna is the best place in Canada for land-based whale watching, and I've had some amazing encounters with the southern resident orcas there. One time I was down on the rocks and it came right by and I could have reached down and touched them. They're pretty amazing, and this is also a pretty timely topic since this population of orca whales is the same one that will be affected by the increase in tanker traffic if the Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion gets built.
1: Well, that is all the time that we have for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the nonprofit public radio we love creating. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. You can visit us at terrainforma.ca to find links to this week's headlines and dive into our archive of past episodes. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes to never miss a week of stories. Thanks this week to our contributors, Sydney Carbonic, Dylan Hall, and Lucas Burroughs. We've been your hosts, Sophia Osborne and Amanda Rooney. Catch you next week on Terra Informa. <laughs>